This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's section of medical education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I am the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Assistant Program Director at Ohio State and a member of the podcasting team at Scholarly. I'm joined today by Emily Witt and Dr. Sarah Onorado, lead authors on the article titled Medical Students and the Drive for a Single Right Answer, Teaching Complexity and Uncertainty, published in ATS Scholar in December 2021. It is so nice to be here with both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Do you mind introducing yourselves and what you do? And also, is it okay if I use your first names? Yes, first names are absolutely okay. My name is Emily Witt. I'm a fourth year medical student at Harvard Medical School, graduating in a, a few months and going into general surgery. And my name is Sarah Honorado. I am a intern at Brigham and Women's Hospital in internal medicine, graduated from Harvard Medical School last year where I was with Emily and love medical education. Looking forward to a good discussion today. Great. And again, thank you so much both for, for coming onto the show. Can you share something about yourselves that maybe other people might not know or find surprising? Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that I don't know might be surprising that I was going to share. So Sarah and I were um, roommates all throughout medical school. So we actually spent many, many nights in the pandemic and kind of throughout the ups and downs of medical school discussing our own experiences with medical education. And that is part of kind of how this article came to be. So it's kind of a fun fact of the, the nature of this article. Yeah, it was great to spend time with Emily and have someone to talk through a lot of these things just throughout medical school. And also as our interest in medical education developed throughout medical school, it was a lot of fun and something probably a lot of people don't know about us. Thank you for kind of coming together and writing this article in your, in your free time. So that's great. And, you know, this really is such an important topic since it's really hard to unwind maladaptive habits that are, are gained in medical school and students are becoming the physicians that they're, they're going to be for, for the rest of their careers. And I guess I'm, I'm just you know, interested how you both were inspired to sort of write about complexity in medical decision-making, how did this, how did this come on your radar? I think it came from a, some repeated anecdotal observations uh, that students, both, you know, our classmates, our peers, and then as we became senior medical students, uh, students that we were teaching had this kind of persistent drive and requested in some cases demand to be given an answer, a very clear answer for every problem that were, they were solving and or they were expecting that everything had a, a clear-cut solution and that they would be shown that and given that so that they could easily find their way there. And this contrasted so much with the clinical environments in which we're thrown into, in which there's almost no such thing as a single right answer or an answer key that you have. And there's so much nuance and so many caveats to the solutions that you find in medicine. And so we wanted to use this paper, I think, in one way to explore why medical students really want this and what, how can we intervene to help them knowing that this kind of drive for a single right answer will only hurt them in the long run. Yeah, I totally agree with Emily. And as she said, I think as our own experience as medical students developed over time, we went from being students who were looking for answers and answering single option test questions and things like that to moving into a clinical environment where it felt a lot 
blurrier and a lot less clear what the right answer was in a lot of situations. And if we noticed that as sort of a disconnect from the way that we had been taught and things had been maybe reinforced in sort of the preclinical or pre-clerkship setting in medical school. Right. It's sort of like a rude awakening when you get from the sort of like highly controlled environment of the preclinical curriculum and kind of show up in real life and medicine is like complex and chaotic and messy and filled with uncertainty. Yeah, I think we like to think that it's a science, but it turns out it's a lot more of an art. And that's something I'm definitely learning as an intern now too. Uh, it's becoming clearer. And you know, you grounded your your argument in sort of a generational context that so-called generation Z learners have certain expectations like high quality digital interfaces and interactivity. And sort of that's like the custom that they're used to. And so how relevant do you think this sort of the drive for certainty and the answer key that a student might have comes from that, that generational component? I think, you know, we did, we grew up in a context of both our generation and the kind of the generation right behind us in which we could Google everything. You know, there was no sitting around. And I think Sarah said this once, there's no sitting around and, and trying to remember that actor who was in that movie, because you can just easily Google it. So there's no time where we're really sitting with that discomfort of uncertainty and trying to struggle towards the answer. We're really trained from a young age to be able to just look something up efficiently, because that is the most efficient way to the right answer. And so then when you get to medical school, you want that efficiency applied, especially given the immense amount of information that you're trying to master. And so I think it's these habits that we formed very early on and these expectations of how we access information and the best way to do so that then clash with an environment in which Yes, you can look up a lot of solutions. You can, you know, Google something, you can look on up to date, but it's maybe not uh, the best way. It won't lead you to the final answer. Yeah. And I think just the amount of information too, that we can know now. And I think that that's only going to increase as the body of medical knowledge increases too, that not only are we used to being able to look things up, but we just have this insurmountable amount of information at our fingertips to the point that it's even sometimes hard to know what to do with all of that and how to sift through it. So I think those two things together, both being able to look things up and just the amount of, of information that is increasingly available to us is something that as modern learners, we're having to contend with in ways that I think are different than you know 50 years ago. Right, I mean, we're not kind of going to the library to search out for the article that has the answer and kind of doing that effortful process that perhaps our, our predecessors had to. Yeah. But at the same time, like we all have access to lots of information. I mean, even medical board exams, like recertification can be taken open book now because the assumption is that like that's nobody keeps all this knowledge in their head and an important skill for physicians and all healthcare practitioners is to be able to look up information quickly and efficiently and sort of synthesize in real time. But you really, in the article talked about answer keys and sort of a, you know, this is the right answer, which I think is different than being able to look up information quickly and efficiently. And so why can an answer key approach to medical training actually hinder a clinician's development in the long run? Why is that a problem? I think an answer key to me has kind of two components. Uh, one is that, you know, provides the actual objective answer that you're looking for so that students know, Hey, I've, I've gotten this right. And they feel that validation of knowing, you know, I've reached the correct result but it also provides boundaries on what you have to know. And 
I think limits the amount of things. So for instance, you know, students might go overboard in their attempt to solve a problem because they're thinking, you know, a couple steps ahead. And so an answer key provides them reassurance that, you know, they're only looking at what they need to, and it kind of provides that backstop of where they can stop and know that they've accomplished what they're supposed to. But I think it can hurt them is number one, because there's often, as we mentioned, kind of not a clear right answer. And so, you know, even if you are reaching a single result, it's often nuanced and there's also often multiple options that you're deciding between. But I also think it doesn't teach students that that second component when it provides boundaries for them, it doesn't teach them how to define those themselves and, you know, find the way to know what is the appropriate question to ask and how you develop your own method for wading through all of this information in an efficient manner and, and how you get there to identify kind of the most pertinent information kind of internally. It, it's kind of provides too much external scaffolding for that process. And I think that uh, hurts their development in the long run. Yeah, I think Emily said it exactly how I would say, except probably better than I could have. But I think the answer <laughs> key really represents an, an end point of you know, this is the end point and, and this is an answer and we can now move on. Whereas I think even with all this information at our fingertips, I think it's becoming increasingly important to learn how to ask the right questions as opposed to know, know the right answers. I think that in order to sift through all that information and find what we need to find, we need to develop the ability to think critically to ask the right questions, to move us towards getting closer to those answers that we want, as opposed to having a definitive endpoint answer that then we move on from. And I think it's that build up process and skill set that medical education increasingly is appropriately, I think, shifting towards focusing on. Right. I mean, it, it's almost like giving somebody step-by-step -step directions to a destination with the course exactly mapped out perfectly. This is exactly how you do this versus saying, here's some basic skills. Here's a compass. <laughs> you need to figure this out because you're going to have to be able to do this on your own. And, you know, in the paper, you discuss the tendency for learners to sort of prefer single right answer questions. And it's tempting to sort of invoke our, our test heavy medical culture that has clearly right and clearly wrong answers, especially, you know, you take a multiple choice. There is one answer that is right. Why, why do you think learners tend to prefer that single right answer? I think it is reinforced by the incentive structure. We have been, you know, even from our pre-med classes, when you're taking physics or chemistry, there's a right answer. And then when you get to the MCAT or medical school, you're often, you know, taking multiple choice tests in which this is reinforced. So I think there's definitely the way that we are tested and assessed and that we get, you know, externally rewarded for reaching that right answer is by finding a single correct answer. But I also think it's anxiety relieving. I think there's an element of wanting to distill all this uncertainty and the discomfort around uncertainty by finding that single answer. And in medical school, when you're facing so many unknowns and it's such a new environment, there's so much new material, it's really nice <laughs> to have a single right answer. So I think there's both kind of external reinforcement of this, and then there's this internal motivation that students just really appreciate having some simplicity among kind of all of this nuance and complexity. Yeah, and I'll add that, you know, as medical school went on, I think that my own personal view on this shifted a little bit, which is that early on, I definitely appreciated that simplicity. And then later, as I started to learn some of the complexities and uncertainties of clinical medicine with studying for exams for that component of medical school. Things like what's the single next best step 
started to not resonate with me as much because I realized that so many things happen in parallel and there are so many possibilities and that often medicine isn't about knowing the diagnosis when a patient walks in the room. It's not about knowing the single thing to do, but all the possibilities. And I felt somewhat constricted by the test structures that didn't take into account the fact that there are often multiple things happening in parallel. I think ways around that that I saw in medical school that worked well were tests that had free response, which I think were frustrating early in medical school. But later I recognized as a nice way to allow me to expound upon my thought process and really get at that earlier part of the reasoning that is leading up to that final answer. And I think that students actually feel this tension a little bit. I think a lot of students are excited about big tests like step one going pass fail because they're so dependent on rote memorization of these esoteric facts. And you have to just know that one key fact that's going to get you to the right answer. And that's, they recognize that that's not ideal. But they also, when you do offer them these free response tests, can feel very uncomfortable or oral exams. And I think in that way, students kind of want the ability that Sarah said, uh, show their reasoning, but they also, I think, feel uncomfortable in doing so because it's not what they're used to. And that's not surprising, right? Because I mean, this medical education doesn't happen in a vacuum. Students have been taking multiple choice tests since like first grade, right? I mean, this is just, this is like that, that is the way that we are learned to, to reason is there is a single right answer to this problem. And you must learn how to figure that out very quickly and efficiently. And I think that sort of is a, a, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because that is sort of how our education system teaches people to, to learn and to think. You, you both talked about sort of um, potential antidotes to this. And I guess for me, one of the things that, that I remembered that worked really well for, and I think some of the first times that I started to think this way in medical school was in sort of the problem-based learning sessions where there isn't necessarily, I mean, there, there is an answer key probably that the facilitator has, but they didn't really share that with us. You know, it was more like, what, what does the group think is, is going on and what do we think is the next right step and sort of coming to a consensus and again, not necessarily there being a right answer. And so that was definitely a part of the, the medical education curriculum and medical school that I, I appreciated. And I, I think one of the, the reasons that, that it can be helpful is almost more about processes rather than, than outcomes in terms of sort of what's the, the goal of the educational session. And you discussed the, the tendency for learners to sort of actually value the opposite often, that there is a tendency to sort of prioritize outcomes over processes. And, you know, perhaps because of some of the incentive structures and the ways that we are taught to learn, but can you explain a bit more about why emphasizing outcomes over processes is potentially problematic? I was recently teaching a, a session as kind of an upper class and student leading a, a review session for a shelf exam for the surgery shelf. And I had a student who very quickly, it was a, a, a the blurb, kind of the question stem was about a patient who had been in a motor vehicle accident, come in, uh, was hypotensive, had bruising on the chest and student very quickly got to the right answer, which was pericardial tamponade. Uh, just to <laughs> jump to the answer. Uh, and I paused and asked him to kind of explain his thinking and how he got there. Cause it was great. He identified it very quickly and I wasn't sure all students kind of made that leap. And he explained very quickly the clues that allowed him to narrow in on that answer among the available answer choices. But uh, he also was, when he was explaining the hypotension, assumed that the patient was hemorrhaging, even though there was no sign in the question stem of hemorrhage. And so he assumed for some reason that this was hemorrhagic shock just because it was a surgical patient who'd been in a car accident. 
And I think it was an important point of learning to discuss, you know, the other causes of shock and what was actually going on with this patient. And so even though, you know, had he been studying on his own and selected the right answer to this multiple choice question, he would have reinforced uh, probably a little bit of incorrect reasoning for how to get there. And I think that would have potentially hurt him in a different scenario in the long run. And this is one individual example, but I think this is repeated over and over in medical school in which, you know, by purely just saying you've gotten to the right answer, you've probably thought about it correctly. We're actually missing a lot of students who are potentially answering things correctly, but thinking about it in the wrong way. Yeah, I think it's that exactly what Emily said, the ability to think flexibly and to apply learning to other scenarios can be hindered by focusing only on the right answer and not necessarily why that answer is right. And then sort of a separate piece and getting back to the idea of problem-based learning and case-based collaborative learning, which we did a lot in medical school. I think that there is some value on this idea that learning is supposed to be hard, that there's some value in that struggling through a difficult problem and not necessarily knowing the right answer and having that uncertainty and that power of that cognitive dissonance that we develop actually can make for what they call stickier learning, where we're both able to remember things better, but then also use them more flexibly in other contexts. And I think those two things combined are are valuable in emphasizing the process so that then when you're approached with another slightly different problem, you have tools in your toolbox to be able to approach that problem because you've seen something like it before and struggled through the process of thinking through its component parts. And, you know, to to quote the the Daniel Kahneman book, you know, like we need to be able to teach students to think fast and to think slow, right? I mean, we have to teach them to be able to make quick, accurate, like resuscitative decisions, Emily, like the scenario that you brought up. Mm-hmm. But then we also like Sarah, like you were saying, we have to be able to, to teach them to work slowly and effortfully, sometimes painfully slowly through a problem and reason through it and come up with a broad differential diagnosis and kind of be okay existing in what is sort of a not it's it can be an uncomfortable place to be but it it seems like we maybe we don't have an incentive structure in our curricula that's that sort of pushes students to be able to think this way to kind of to learn both of those skills and sort of be comfortable thinking fast and thinking slow it this seems like a really important it is an important clinical reasoning skill to be able to develop. How can we encourage or even incentivize students to to be okay learning to think this way? I think changing the way that we evaluate students from this kind of uh, 100% right or wrong answer this kind of all or nothing endeavor to one in which you can get partial credit and recognizing that you're not necessarily getting partial credit on the wards in the future when you're a doctor. But for medical school, I think it's really valuable in the sense that you can reinforce, as we were kind of talking about, the parts of the process that students get right and then correct parts that they get wrong so that they feel in some ways validated that they're not getting everything wrong and that that's reinforcing. And they're in that way more kind of receptive to feedback and you're getting more granular about how to provide them that nuanced feedback that's actually going to allow them to develop more quickly because they're focusing on the areas that they really need to improve. And so, like you said, if you, if they're getting that system one thinking down and they are really good at efficiently identifying, you know, those sick, not sick patients, but then they're not good at digging in deeper and thinking about why those are two different cognitive problems. And so students can tailor their approach to how they're going to grow as medical students if they're getting more nuanced feedback in that way. Yeah. And I think moves like step one, going to pass fail, I think does help 
I think trying to come up with alternative evaluation mechanisms, as Emily was alluding to, and whether that means oral examination, free response examinations in medical school where students are able to not only show that they can get to a right answer, but sort of show their work in a way that, you know, a high school math test might be structured, for example, as opposed to having it multiple choice, really being able to go through the whole problem and show how you got there so that one, we can identify where common places might be that people are going wrong. And then number two, so that we can emphasize that it's the process of getting to the answer and not just the answer in and of itself that we're interested in and that we're not only evaluating students on, but giving students feedback as well. I also recognize that this is, I think one of the huge barriers to this is time and on, on the part of the educators. It's a very time consuming process to give students a free response test and have to grade that and to develop a systematic way of grading that. And it also takes time in a clinical scenario when you ask students, you know, can you explain your thinking? So I think creating ways and spaces in which we actually have time for educators to do that is also really important in recognizing that the system is not necessarily always designed to allow for that kind of space and taking pauses to really dig in deep in this way. And so there might be kind of bigger battles to fight than just kind of restructuring exams. Emily, I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, kind of bringing this back into sort of the clinical realm from the preclinical and thinking about something like rounds, you know, like when I round in the ICU, rounds are much more efficient if there isn't a lot of discussion <laughs> and there isn't, you know, that sort of back and forth and wrestling with things, but people learn less, right? And I think their rounds are less educational when it's just kind of, you know, here's the problem, here's the plan. And I think part of that too, is there is a discomfort with uncertainty, right? I, I, that sensation is definitely not unique to medical students. I mean, I'm three years into my practice as a faculty member, and I can confidently say that I do not enjoy clinical uncertainty, <laughs> you know, solving diagnostic dilemmas. It's, it can be really fulfilling. It is very fulfilling, but you know, especially being able to get answers for patients and solve problems and help them solve problems. But I think in medicine, we never want uncertainty to persist. We want to get the diagnosis as fast as possible and with as much certainty as possible. This is not, a, I think, a problem that's unique to learners. I think this is true of, of all of medicine. You know, one thing I think learners see less is that senior clinicians struggle with uncertainty too. And so I think part of this is that because uncertainty is so uncomfortable for everyone, and it's a very vulnerable thing to try to externalize that and to voice aloud, I'm dealing with this uncertainty. These are the options I'm weighing. This is what I'm not sure about. And in some ways, it's very powerful when you have faculty or educators uh, in a clinical setting voicing that. And so I think changing the paradigm a little bit into one in which it's normal on rounds for everyone to voice something that they're uncertain about. I know it would definitely take much longer, um, definitely not everyone every time, but something where you do start to ask more questions and model for learners that this is normal. This is what everyone's dealing with. And then even if you move quickly kind of to resolving that uncertainty, learners at least know that that's there. And so it'll take learners, I think, longer to navigate it. Uh, as you become more and more proficient, you'll be able to kind of resolve it more quickly. But knowing that this is something that everyone's going through, I think is actually an important first step to teaching learners how to deal with that discomfort. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As I moved into being an intern this year, I think I started to realize that I expected that the residents I was working with or the attendings that I was working with had an answer key in some way. I didn't realize that I sort of had that idea in my head that there was you know, a right way to approach a patient or a right plan for the day and that it was my job to figure out what that plan was. And it wasn't until I had some folks who I was working with 
residents and attendings who modeled that uncertainty and said, you know, I really don't know to questions that I asked or when I proposed a plan that I finally realized that I sort of had that bias, I think, pent up from being a medical student where I assumed that there was a right answer out there and that it was my job to try to figure it out and that someone else knew what it was. It wasn't until others shared by simply just saying, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on with this patient or I'm not really sure the best thing to do, but let's try this or this is how I'm thinking about it, that I started to understand that uncertainty was something that one, wasn't going away and that two, other people were dealing with as well. And none of us want to be wrong, right? I mean, and I found your discussion about the fear of faltering in the paper particularly powerful. I mean, that's such a powerful motivator for all of us, whether it's you know, fear of academic failure as a medical student or for residents and faculty causing, you know, real harm to patients. And so, but at the same time, but to err is human and we all fall short at one point or another. And so is that where the concept of productive failure comes in? Yeah, I think you can have a very similar discussion about you know, the need to voice your discomfort with uncertainty and the need to talk about failure. It's something that we kind of never address fully in medicine from the shard of medical school beyond. It's seen as, I think, taboo to discuss it. And it's something that you deal with if it happens, but it's not something that you try to anticipate. And so you don't openly talk about students that failure is a possibility and that if that happens, this is what you could do uh, in response to that. And so students actually don't learn how to fail and it becomes this incredibly intimidating possibility that is very real. That, and as you know, most people fail, most people will fail, they'll make mistakes. And I think we don't really discuss it in a way in which students are ready for when it happens because it will happen. And so I think one of the things I really loved when we were doing the research for this paper was coming across this idea of productive failure in which you could create situations in which students are in a safe place to fail in medical school and that that could help them in the long run. And we actually discuss a great study in this in which they created intentionally hard physics problems and they randomized students to either the intentionally kind of hard, poorly structured problems or these well-structured problems. Uh, and they solved them in groups. And the students who did the poorly structured problems, as you would anticipate, did quite poorly. Uh, and the ones who did the well-structured problems did well. And then they had them individually take another test. And the ones who actually were faced with the poorly structured problems initially did much better. And I, so I think that was an important lesson for us about how could we create these environments in medical school in which students are faced with quite significant challenges, but in a way that they can fail and recover and we can teach them how to recover well. And so I think the idea of productive failure is something that could be really powerful if incorporated into this kind of medical student paradigm. Yeah, and I think that the culture of that really needs to come from you know, the educators and the, the folks who are working with students and other learners. Because I think the idea really is to facilitate students, quote unquote, failing without making them necessarily feel like failures and to emphasize that those mistakes or errors or whatever we want to call them are sort of intentionally designed as part of the learning process and that there's something to be gained from them. And then I think it gets you know, more challenging as we think about trainees and other folks who are in more direct patient care roles where you know, there can be real consequences to errors that are made and finding ways to do things like simulation or creating other spaces where trainees who are still learners can find opportunities to try things out, to build their skill sets, build their confidence, and to understand how to approach situations when they do face them clinically. And you know what's coming to mind for me as you guys sort of you know talk about productive failure is sort of the concept of the zone of proximal development, right? That 
We all have things that we are really good at and don't need help with. And we have things that we can't do. And then there's this wide space in the middle, this zone of proximal development where we can accomplish and learn a lot if we get the help we need and the sort of the oversight. And I feel like an important part of that is sort of psychological safety. And, and as we you know, as we wrap up the podcast, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on how educators can encourage trainees to sort of feel psychologically safe in that zone of proximal development where learning is effortful, but that's where sort of most of the gains, you know, happen as we grow as physicians. And so how can we help trainees feel psychologically safe in that zone? I think normalizing it is a really a powerful place to start is, is really making sure that trainees know that this is something that everyone's experiencing, the, the need to ask questions, the feeling that you're going to make a mistake or that you will make a mistake, the fact that, you know, everyone will fail at some point. But I also think it's, you know, important to incorporate structures in which there's space for psychological safety. I think our system right now is built towards efficiency and, and medical students struggling you know, it's not something that we can do every day on the wards or kind of in settings as someone who's going to surgery. I'm I'm very mindful of the need for kind of efficient processes in the hospital. And so I think it's going to actually take some really difficult thinking to think about how we incorporate safety for students and psychological safety by creating an educational zone in which there's room for them to struggle and room for them to think and, and grapple with problems in some ways that is in contrast to the normal workflow of the the, the kind of dynamic work setting of the hospital. So I think part of it is that a day-to-day struggle that educators can really model for students that this is normal and that you can ask questions and you can struggle. And then part of it is creating a more welcoming environment for them to do so. Yeah, I totally agree with Emily. I think normalizing this as part of our culture and again, understanding that we're all learners, it's just different phases of the learning process, whether we're a medical student or a new attending or an attending who's been around for a long time. We all have things we know and things we don't and things that we're more confident in and less confident in. And so I think within the constraints that sometimes exist in clinical learning environment, as much as educators can model and emphasize the fact that there's areas of uncertainty and things that they don't know, I think that can make it a easier thing for medical students to see that and understand that it's okay that the people that they maybe thought knew it all don't and that we're all just sort of on different points along this learning process that really is lifelong in medicine. And it's so powerful, right? When an attending on service on the first day says to the team, I want you to say, I don't know if you don't know, that's totally fine. I'm going to say it to you. If I don't know something, I want you to say it to me and creating that sort of zone of safety of, of uncertainty, of complexity, of imperfection. I think that's a yeah, very, very powerful concept. Yeah. One of the greatest things I ever heard an attending say was they asked me a question they said, if you know, great. And if you don't even better. And I think that as the learner reinforced to me that they understood that there are things I know, there are things that I don't, and that part of the point of me being there was to learn things that I didn't. And I found it very empowering and comforting. Well, Emily and Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you both for writing this article along with the senior author on the paper, Dr. Richard Schwartzstein. I really enjoyed this discussion. And I I really, I hope that educators everywhere take the time to read this paper, because I really think there are so many important concepts that you would address in this paper that I think are just foundational for sort of the way that we should be looking at the way we structure our clinical reasoning curricula that I think we could do better at. And so thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us and for prioritizing this, this topic. Yeah, thank you. It was great talking with you both. 
So that concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal, and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org. Take care, everybody.